I'm really anti the opinion that because you went through a hardship that everyone should have to go through the hardship to get to the place that you are. I think that is antiquated. I think it's cruel and it's unempathetic. And for me, I don't want anyone to have to deal with the crap that I dealt with. The sports industry, as sexy and cool as it is, is really messed up. And I never want someone to have to go through that. Welcome to the Council Podcast, a podcast about life as an in-house lawyer. I'm your host, Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I am passionate about all things in-house and am so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. My guest today is Alex Sinatra. Alex is a self-professed multi-potentialite, someone who has many different interests and creative pursuits in life. As well as practicing as an in-house lawyer, Alex has had a truly diverse career. She is an author, podcast host, and specializes in sports and esports law. She also works as a productivity consultant and all-round problem solver. Her perspective on using data to influence decisions and communicate how the legal team is adding value sparked some new ideas for me. She is one seriously interesting individual and I was inspired by her story. I think it will resonate with you too if you enjoy practicing law but don't consider it to be your one true calling. Who knows, you might be a multi-potentialite as well. Enjoy this episode with Alex Sinatra. Alex, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Texas and on your Saturday evening. I really appreciate it and it's lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Well, this has been a few weeks in the making. We've been trying to find a time that would work and here we are. It's uh, it's really fantastic to have you. I've got lots of questions and I've been doing a little bit of a deep dive <laughs> on what you're all about because you've got some great content out and available. So I feel like uh, I've had a chance to meet you before we've we've spoken, which is, <laughs> you know, that's always really quite lovely and not always available for me for guests. So I so appreciate it. I'm going to start with my first question, Alex. I always ask my guests, if you had a limitless credit card, you didn't have to pay it back, but you could only spend it at one shop. What shop would that be and why? This is such a fun question. And I actually sat back and thought about what I might do (laughs) with a credit card that was limitless. And there's this shop in Toronto, in Canada, called George C., and it's over in the Bloor Yorkville area and their style and selection of designer clothes and shoes and accessories are amazing. It's in a beautiful building. Their staff is amazing. They have the greatest items from around the world from all these amazing designers and when I went in there for the first time, it was just absolutely heaven. So if I had a limitless credit card, I would definitely go shopping there. Amazing. That sounds wonderful. You can fly me over in a private jet. I'll come with you. I mean, Perfect. this is limitless, so let's let's go big. But that sounds just beautiful. I'm absolutely going to Google that store once we're finished <laughs> with our time today. I love that. Thank you. 
Alex, looking at your LinkedIn profile and, and doing a little bit of a deep dive before we came and spoke today, I can really get a sense that your background and your experience as a lawyer and, and otherwise is really diverse. Can you tell us how your career has evolved? Definitely. I knew that I really wanted to work in the world of sports ever since I was young. And sports law, as a lot of people may or may not know, is not actually an area of law. <laughs> it just means that you're doing a ton of different types of law within the world of sport. So it's everything from immigration to transactional work to labor and employment law to advertising law. So I knew that I needed a diverse background to be able to follow the pursuit of working in sports law because I wanted to work in-house, either for a team or a league or with professional players or with a company tangential to sport. So I knew that I needed a lot of different experiences. And I also love a lot of pursuits outside of the law. So I love entrepreneurship, authorship, learning new languages. I just really like to learn. I even wrote a whole book series about um, different areas that I'm interested in. And it also couples with my podcast, which was all about being everything that you want to be. So for me, I really didn't want to limit myself to just one type of law or even just to law in general because I have a lot of different areas of my life that I am interested in pursuing. And ultimately, I want to be happy. So if I am not able to pursue other things and I'm just pigeonholed into one area, I might not be that happy because my creative side isn't being nourished. I love what you said to me when we were preparing for this interview. On this exact point, you said that we are humans first and attorneys second. And that totally resonated. I, I feel like you're living your truth as a human in the way that you've just explained how you you like to spend your time and that that's including the law, but not entirely consumed by the law. Is that is that kind of how you see it? Exactly. It's including but not limited to, <laughs> right? So, so I, I definitely agree with that. And I love that you brought that up because at the end of the day, your life is what's important. And we have really learned during the pandemic that a lot of people's identity and self-worth was wrapped up in what they do or what their title was. And when that went away, a lot of people suffered some mental health crises and didn't know what their purpose or vision was and ultimately my purpose and vision is to help people right and i'm a person <laughs> so if i'm not helping myself i'm not really living my purpose or my vision and i'm not going to be happy because i know what i like to do i like to help people and i like to live my life and spend my life with the people that i love and work is not always that so i want to make sure i have a well-rounded life where i'm not just working but i'm also living and with the the content that you do put out online, you, you often refer to a term called multi-potentialite. I was unfamiliar with that term until I came across your use of it. Can you explain what that is and how that is kind of fitting into what we're talking about at the moment? Yes, I can. I love this question. I get it pretty frequently, actually. <laughs> so a multi-potentialite, it was a term that was coined by Emily Wapniak. She did a TED Talk, and I stumbled across that TED Talk, and I fell in love with this word. But it's not necessarily a new concept. So a multi-potentialite is someone who's a Renaissance person or 
a jack or jill of all trades. Um, they're also known as expert generalists as well. And so essentially it's someone that doesn't just have one pursuit in their life, but rather they're able to pursue multiple interests at the same time and they have success in disparate fields. So for me, I'm a marketer, but I'm also a sports journalist. I'm also a sports attorney and I podcast and I used to live on a ranch and I know a lot about horses and like, and I've traveled all over the world. So for me, I'm a multi-potentialite because I have more than one interest and I'm able to pursue it, but I'm able to kind of weave all of my different interests together. Everything that I am doing is informing another part of my life. And for me, ultimately, it's making me a more well-rounded human being. You have to tell me how you can link kind of the ranch experience to the in-house lawyer experience. How does th- how does that one weave together? I'm sure I'm sure it does in some way. It but, definitely yeah. does. Yes. And it's as a rancher or someone who grows up on a farm or you're um, raising livestock or growing crops, you have to be adaptable. You have to be able to work in a team environment. You have to be a problem solver. You have to see issues that may arise proactively um, before they turn into problems. So for instance, if you know that you have um, this particular horse and this horse always acts a certain way and then one day it's starting to act a different way, you immediately have to start problem solving. Is this horse sick? Does this horse have something wrong with his feet? Did this horse get into a fight? Um, is the horse depressed? Is the Do the horse's shoes not fit properly? All of these different things. So it's pretty much exactly like being yes. an attorney when you're issue yes. solving and problem spotting, right? <laughs> and if you don't get the instructions that you really need and you have to read between the lines and try and be a mind reader sometimes, I, I can totally see the, the connection. I feel like there would be plenty of law students and and early career lawyers who who could be listening that may have just had a like an aha moment hearing you explain that term because you know I'm not sure if this was your experience I'd love to I'd love to know but when when I was going through law school I certainly felt like I needed to channel and focus all of my energy just on being that that law student and that best high achiever that I could be to get a law firm experience and my first job and that there was no time for other things and that that was detracting away from my serious pursuit of being a lawyer and and it was yeah really single-minded and and I feel like I might have lost some of who I was more broadly than that only to start to reconnect with it later. Was that your experience? And what would you say to to those law students that might be feeling that, oh, that sense of I've got to mute and tone down some of those other passions that I have? Yes, I feel like a lot of people especially in law school, experience that kind of singularity of mindset where they believe that they can't really pursue anything else because if they do, then it's going to take away from them becoming an attorney or passing the bar. And I believe that that causes a ton of anxiety and a ton of mental health issues as well. And for me, I'm going to explain a little bit about why I had to kind of reinvent myself at a young age. So I was a gymnast. I was a very competitive gymnast. Um, I trained with some famous coaches. I went around the United States competing. I won a lot of competitions. And when I was quite young, maybe I think 11 years old, I broke my back. 
And my dreams of going to the Olympics, my dreams of making the national team, doing all of that just kind of like went out the window almost immediately. So at a very, very young age, I had to reinvent what I was going to do in my life, right? And I recognized that putting all of my eggs in one basket maybe wasn't the best option for me, that I needed to diversify my life. Because when I was a gymnast, I spent six days a week in the gym. And on the seventh day, I was essentially thinking about gymnastics. And I did two a days in the summer, six days a week. So that's all I did was gymnastics. And when it was taken from me, I didn't know who I was. So I kind of went through that crisis that we talked about before. I My entire identity was wrapped up in a competitive, high-level gymnast. And so I had the experience of not putting all my eggs in one basket. So when I got to law school, I recognized that, yes, I wanted to be an attorney. Yes, I wanted to do sports law. But ultimately, there were other things in my life that I couldn't let die in order to pursue this new goal. And so I worked at a retail shop selling Peruvian clothes because when I was in college, I got a fashion scholarship to fly to New York and I won a competition and I still loved fashion. I still love fashion now, hence why I love George C. from the first question that you asked. And so for me, I recognized that if I just put my entire focus singularly on doing really, really well in law school and that's all I did, that I probably would be very unhappy in law school and I would probably be very unhappy when I got to my first job because then I would say, well, now I have to just focus on working here and making sure that I do the best that I could possibly do so I can get promoted. And then when you get promoted, well, I don't have time now to take care of myself or to travel because I need to focus on this promotion, right? So it's kind of a vicious cycle that you have to break as soon as you figure out that you're in that cycle. I love that you were able to have well, actually, no, I don't love that you were able to have that experience as a, <laughs> as a young person because, you know, 11 and having such a traumatic injury, obviously not great. But my goodness, the life lesson that you were able to learn so early to then know not to repeat when you were kind of coming into your later teens and early 20s is something that not all of us are able to draw upon that kind of life experience. And they, you know, find yourself in that yeah, that rat race and that uh, conveyor belt of the next, the next carrot, the next carrot, the next shiny object, and mm-hmm. maybe to the detriment of other elements of your life. So, yeah, good on you for kind of getting on the front foot there and now sharing your knowledge and and giving back to those that may not have, I suppose, had the experience to draw upon. I think. Um, yeah, it's really powerful stuff what you're saying and it totally it totally resonates. I love your uh I suppose I suppose your your outlook and the way that you were able to still connect your love for for sports and and you know physical exercise and and bring that into your life as a lawyer. I want to ask about your experience as a sports lawyer and whether it lived up to and continues to live up to those expectations that you might have had for for that part of your life. So when I first decided I wanted to do sports law and go to law school, I actually had turned down a position in London out of undergrad to do marketing because I have a degree in marketing and I was offered a position with a company in London and I said, you know, I really want to do sports law. I'm going to go to law school now. And so I thought that I wanted to be a sports agent because I saw Jerry Maguire. I thought that if I wanted to be a sports attorney, 
agency was the only way. And so I interned in law school with a couple of sports agencies in NBA, NFL, and I decided that while I liked the agents I worked with, the industry of agency is a very cutthroat and sometimes underhanded industry. And so I went to my mentor, who's my who was my sports law professor. He's still my mentor. His name is Christian Denny. He's a phenomenal attorney. And I said, what am I going to do? I'm in law school. I wanted to be a sports attorney. Now I don't know what else I can do. And he said, Alex, come on. There are a million jobs that you can do as a sports attorney. I'm like, okay, well, then why don't you enlighten me? He said, okay, you can work in-house for a team. You can work in-house for a league. You can be a personal attorney for a professional athlete. You could work at a company tangential to sport like Nike or Reebok or Under Armour. And so my world kind of opened up. And I said, wow, I could be general counsel for the Dallas Mavericks or I could be the general counsel of a soccer team in Italy or a rugby team in Australia or whatever it may be or I could be a commissioner of a league and so I said to myself wow there's a lot that I can do and so I looked to get a job in sports out of law school I ended up taking a temporary position with a family law firm because I thought to myself let me just see if I like family law I love, you know, the idea of adoption and surrogacy. Let me just see. I did not like that law firm. And luckily, it was a trial run. If you like it, you can stay type situation. I did not like it. I left. (laughs) But luckily, what I did in law school, the connections I made in law school, actually panned out into a position after that job with a family that owns a ton of professional sports teams in the United States. And so they said, you know, we will bring you in on a project basis and you can do some oil and gas but if we have sports work we will send it your way and so the general counsel of that family who's the general counsel of some of their professional sports teams came to my office one day and he's like Alex we have some sports work for you and I was like oh my gosh this is amazing and so I got to (laughs) I got to lobby the Texas legislature on behalf of the professional sports teams in Texas to allow 50-50 sports gambling or 50-50 charitable raffles at professional sporting events and it ended up passing and becoming law in the state of Texas and so that was really cool because now when I go well before the pandemic, pre-pandemic, when I went to professional sporting events and they did the 50-50 raffles, I just always sat back and laughed because I was like, well, I helped with that. (laughs) Yeah, that was me. (laughs) And so that was pretty cool. And after that, I went to a huge multinational company and I talked to another one of my mentors and I said, this isn't sports law. He said, Alex, sports law doesn't exist. (laughs) There's a ton of different types of law that make up sports law. He said, so if you're going to be doing employment law at this huge multinational company, you're learning how a company on a huge scale works, you're doing transactional work, that is literally directly related to what you want to do for a team or a league. So take the job. Learn what you need to learn. Manage the team in India. I managed an entire team in India as a very long, young lawyer. And so it was just really cool. And then I got a job with USA Today as a writer. And I wrote all about the NFL. And I still work for them. And so for me, it was really cool that I picked an area of law, kind of unbeknownst to me, sports law, that was encompassing so many different areas of the law. Right. Because it kind of I guess I was drawn to it, not only because I had a love of sport, but also because of my 
expert generalist or my multi-potentiality really kind of shone through and I picked an area of the law that encompassed a ton of different things. Oh, wow. That's quite a story. I feel like <laughs> this, oh, I have so many follow-up questions. I I love what your mentor said about giving you that perspective to take a step back and look more broadly at the options that were available to you and just really opened up your eyes to to you know wow I really can actually do so much more than I, than I thought of and the power of a mentor in that situation is just absolutely phenomenal and you said again you know at, at another time another mentor was there to guide you and it sounds like you you really do foster and cultivate some some exceptional mentor relationships is is that right yes I definitely go out of my way to have mentors, especially in the area of law that I am in. It's all about who you know. It's all about networking. It's all about relationship building and providing value for those in the industry. And I really do credit my mentors for the place that I am now. I mean, they're constantly sending me helpful information, sending me words of encouragement, just emailing me to ask What's going on? How am I doing? Hey, I'd like to introduce you to this person. And that didn't happen by happenstance. I made a concerted effort to reach out to people and to cultivate those relationships because I knew how important they would be for me, but also how important it would be for them because some of these mentors that I have are much older than me. And so they're not on the up and up in the podcasting world or what the new apps are or what some of the advertising law means or like what is OnlyFans and what are these professional athletes doing on there you know what I mean so I knew that I was going to be able to help them from that standpoint as time went on so the long run I'm able to help them just as much as they're helping me when they helped me in the short term we live in a time where technology is king and or queen I like to say that she's queen but (laughs) but you're able to reach out to people in a variety of ways you just have to make sure that it's professional so I reach out to new people all the time on LinkedIn and I'll reach out to them by adding them and then adding note and when I add the note I make sure that I've done research on them, right? You have to do your research. You can't just say like, hey you, I want you to be my mentor. Like, hey you, help me in my career because that's not giving, right? Like you're not giving before you're getting from them and you need to make sure that you're giving them something. So I would suggest that you reach out to them and you say something like, I absolutely loved reading your article on X, Y, and Z. If you have 10 minutes to talk about it, I would just love to learn more from you because I value your opinion. Something like that. People love to have, for lack of a better word, their ego stroked, right? Like if you spent time writing an article or creating a podcast or doing some type of research paper even and someone took the time to read it and they want to talk to you about it, that's the biggest compliment ever. So people more than likely are going to take the time. And then also providing value to them. So if you know that they are interested in X area of the law and you read a really cool article or case or blog post about that area of the law, you can add them, send note and say something like, I researched a little bit about your background on LinkedIn and I know that you are an expert in X field. I found this really cool, obscure blog post about that area of law that I thought you might like, right? So providing that value to them is really going to build a strong relationship and then if 
you want to have them as a mentor and if they want to be your mentor that might come organically or if it's you know been quite a few times that you guys have talked and you're starting to build rapport you can ask them you know can you mentor me in this area of law and kind of explain to them what that might be like and you can say something like it's just going to keep our relationship exactly the same but I would really just love to be able to have you as a mentor that I can bounce more ideas off of and more than likely they're going to say yeah totally I had mentors in my life too I wouldn't have been where I am if I didn't have mentors so it's all about how you reach out and the professional relationship that you cultivate with them because you can't reach out once and then expect that to form into a mentorship relationship because it's all about cultivating the relationship Mm, and adding value I love that I think that is yeah such wonderful advice Alex and uh, there's a lot in that for sure and I also love what you said about giving back and now turning from mentee to mentor and It's so true, isn't it, that we get to a point in our career and it's like, oh, I've actually got something to put back out now. I can pay it forward, the people that were were kind and generous with me. And we all, I don't know, I feel like I have a sense of duty to pass that back. I think that we we should do more of it within the industry. There's plenty of room for those that have gone before to pass back and make it easier for the ones that are coming up now, I would suggest. I agree. I am really anti the opinion that because you went through a hardship that everyone should have to go through the hardship to get to the place that you are. I think that is antiquated. I think it's cruel and it's unempathetic. And for me, I don't want anyone to have to deal with the crap that I dealt with. The sports industry, as sexy and cool as it is, is really messed up. There's a lot of misogyny. There is a lot of unequal pay. There's a lot of discrimination based upon race and gender. And I never want someone to have to go through that. I won't, don't want to say like, I've been sexually harassed at work. So like, you need to too. I mean, that makes literally no sense. It's like hurt people hurt people. But just because I'm hurt, I don't want to be to hurt other people. And I don't want them to have to deal with the stuff I've dealt with. So having a mentor that is a really strong mentor might not shield you from those things, but you can learn so much from them and maybe you won't have to deal with everything they dealt with. And then the next generation will have to deal with even less and even less until you don't have to deal with it at all. Yeah, well said. I, I really struggle when I hear it's typical kind of senior employees who often say, well, I had to struggle. It was tough for me to come up through the ranks. And so now I'm not giving any leniency to, to the juniors underneath me. I've, I've certainly seen those conversations play out. And I think it's appalling. And I think that we know better so we can now do better. And it's our turn to write that up and, and actually start to break it and say, no, this is this cycle is insane, particularly in the legal profession we're not doing it this way anymore like something has to give I always wonder what would happen if you know those senior leadership people if their younger self came to them and sat down and said really you you wish that other people struggled like we did really like you're wishing that me your younger self has to go through this crap like if there was a way that we didn't have to go through this struggle or this harassment or this discrimination or this extreme amounts of anxiety every day you're telling me that you would still want us to go through it 
I mean, they, they wouldn't tell them younger, their younger selves like, well, I hate you, so I want you to go through crap. I mean, it just doesn't make any logical sense. And if they sat down with their younger self face to face, they would have a completely different viewpoint on, oh, I struggled, so you have to struggle. I'm going to steer us to another direction now. I would love to, to bring you to this week coming and what a typical week or even a day looks like for you in your legal life right now. So the first half of my day is spent in my morning routine. The first two hours of my morning, I wake up fairly early. The first two hours of my morning are all about me and preparing myself for the world. It involves working out. It involves eating. It involves meditation. So it's kind of just the self-care, getting my mind right. And then the first half of my work day is consulting for a law firm where I'm part of a small business team and I handle everything from sports law matters to employment issues to business entity formation. And every single day is completely different there. I'm an of counsel there. I'm not sure if that's a term that you guys use in Australia or not. No, but I Googled it. And okay. we, <laughs> we, we would probably say special counsel. Okay. So then I'm a special counsel or an of counsel. <laughs> of counsel is great. <laughs> for the law firm for the first half of the day. And then I generally take about an hour to an hour and a half to eat, relax, just get my mind right, sit outside, walk my dog, make sure that I am mentally good and physically good. And then the second half of my day is spent on my sports consulting business. And so I help professional sports teams, leagues, and athletes become more productive, effective, and efficient. I do that by assessing, analyzing, and helping them implement systems into their workflows so that everything operates smoothly. So something like negotiation training or procedures evaluations and other curated strategies for them. And that can involve anything from actually consulting with a professional athlete to doing the business development or the entrepreneurship for the company as well, doing some marketing. And then I do podcast interviews. I do panel interviews. I sit on panels for conferences. I go on to the new latest app here in the United States called Clubhouse. And I sit on panels where I moderate. I do a ton of appearances and speaking engagements, and I do a lot of writing. So you mentioned that I produce a lot of content. That is true. I love creating content. I don't know what it is. Uh, my father's an author. Uh, he's written, he's about to write his second book, finish his second book. The first one's called The Bone-Handled Stiletto. And so I think that since he's been a writer for a long time, I kind of started loving the idea of creating content and writing. And so I've written a lot of books that couple with my podcast. And I have all that on yourpotentialforeverything.com on my website. So it's it really is kind of legal consulting first half of the day second half of the day is entrepreneurship and sports consulting and sports law and networking in the sports world because you never know who your next client might be and so it's really a fun part of my life because before this I was working for a professional soccer team in-house counsel for them and I did everything for them and when I say everything I mean everything I did everything from marketing to advertising to being the in-house counsel to negotiating media deals to creating the ad uh, the 
interviews for all the players, creating all of the charitable outreach. I mean, I did everything for them and I worked seven days a week. It was not a healthy lifestyle because I was basically never sleeping, working 12 to 15 hours a day. And I just, I was doing what I always wanted to do, working in-house for a sports team, but it just wasn't really that fulfilling. And it could be because of the team I was working for, the atmosphere that was there. It could also be that I wasn't taking the time out for me because we were so like so short-staffed that we basically couldn't take a day off and it was awful. And so this part of my life now, I am basically living a life that is perfectly curated for me and it is wonderful. That is so inspiring, Alex. <laughs> I am... Truly, you are like, you are next level in terms of exactly that, curating a life that is perfect for you. And coming from that family law law firm experience, then kind of into the in-house space, some writing, but now it's like everything that you have worked towards or has been a part of your life is now just truly you know, you're part of your everyday. Wow, it's so inspiring. How (laughs) did you... Make the leap from full time employment for uh, in house for the team to what you're living now, which is you know much more of a portfolio career. How how did you do that? So it was kind of thrust upon me. So <laughs> as a lot of people found in the pandemic, they lost their jobs, right? So for me, I was told that they were, what was the phrase, Um, restructuring the in-house roles for all the staff and that my services were no longer needed. There is a much deeper story. There's a much deeper story there that I can't really. (laughs) Yes. There's a much deeper story there that I can't really share because it's confidential, but it has nothing to do with me doing anything wrong. Let's just leave it there. Um, sure. but, <laughs> but for me, you know, they they laid me off and that was March of 2020. And I was like, man, this, this really sucks, right? And my family was like, listen, Alex, I, I'm a Christian. So, you know, my family said, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are they're called according to his purpose. That's a Bible verse. And so I, I live by that, you know, everything is going to work out in a way that is great for me. I just need to make sure that I keep moving forward. And so I said, okay, let me see why this could be a good thing. And then I started going through all the illnesses I had when I was working for the team. And one particular sickness just really stood out in my mind. I I had bursitis in my hip, my knee was swollen, my ankle was swollen, my jaw on the right side was swollen, my shoulder was swollen, and I was starting to like, my my back was starting to like get really sore and I was starting to like almost turn in on myself because I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't stretching, I wasn't going to my chiropractor, I wasn't getting enough sleep, I wasn't getting good nutrition. And so when I sat back, I was like, you were really unhappy at that position and this was like you being able to leave without feeling guilty for leaving the players because ultimately I was pretty much the only person in the front office that strongly advocated for our players and made sure that things were going right for them because I had that obligation having worked in agency previously and so I said to myself man I really want to work for me I want to do things for me that I want to do and it took me a while it took me about nine or 10 months to kind of figure out, 
wow, yeah, I want to work for myself. I've been doing consulting here and there for quite a while now, but maybe I should just kind of go in all in on the consulting. And that's what I did. And ultimately, I had the ability to work from home for USA Today and, you know, get that income. And then I had already curated my kind of income streams. I'm always no matter if I'm working full-time for another person or not, I am constantly curating and adding new revenue streams just in case something happens. So for me, when I lost the full-time position with the sports team, I actually started making more money <laughs> when I stopped working for them because I was able to devote more times time to my other revenue streams. Yes. So for me, it was a blessing in disguise for sure. And I love your your mindset there on trusting in in the power of something greater than us, and that everything's going to work out if you if you just show up every day and just kind of keep that momentum and keep keep pushing forward with what feels right for for what your life can look like. And here we are, I don't know, thirteen months later, and you're you're really living it. So I, I, I wow, take that moment to really recognize how far you've come. I think that's just phenomenal and super inspiring for anyone who's listening who may have some job insecurity or uncertainty at the moment with the ongoing pandemic. It can be an uns- an unsettling time for a lot of people still. And hey, you know, there are other ways to to kind of pay the bills. And maybe there's that silver lining, as you said, the blessing in disguise that uh it could be the start of something something else, something bigger. I don't know. It's pretty inspiring to me. So thank you for sharing. That's really, really <laughs> quite fantastic. I didn't, I didn't know that that was your story. So I'm glad I asked that question. And I do have other questions, Alex, but I don't love them so much anymore. Like I, I kind of, <laughs> I want to kind of go off script a little bit because you've just got so much, uh, so much wisdom and knowledge there. And the questions I were going to ask, so maybe we can do them and, and I'll, I'll cut them out if it doesn't work. But if we go back to when you were working full time in house, there's a piece there that I want to deep dive in a little because it sounds like you were pretty run off your feet and, and doing things well beyond just the purely legal. So I suspect that that you were outsourcing some of this work to to law firms. And if if so, how would you make that assessment on what would stay with you and what would go to the law firm? Yes. So this is a really great question. I'm actually writing an article about this, <laughs> which is kind of hilarious, about when to outsource and when to keep things in-house. So I'm going to speak about the multinational company because I utilized outside counsel a ton. So I worked at a huge multinational company. It was a staffing firm. There were headquarters in the United States and in India, and I managed an entire team in India. And granted, this was my first full-time in-house position out of law school. So I was managing a team on another continent. I always felt like I was in over my head, but because I did tons of research and didn't just sit on my laurels, I was actually quote, one of the best bosses we've ever had, which was crazy to me, the team in India. Um, So for me, it was imperative (laughs) that I utilize our outside counsel well. So we talked about me being a multi-potentialite and how I have a broad knowledge of a lot of different topics, but I do have a deep knowledge of a large number of areas as well. However, as any attorney that is listening knows, there are certain areas of the law that are so specialized that doesn't make sense to learn about those areas as an in-house counsel. It just makes so much more sense to outsource them. So issues like tax law or immigration, I would send those to outside counsel or 
very specific areas of labor and employment, since it was a multinational global company, there were certain areas of the law, let's say in the Philippines, that I'm not gonna know about. So we're gonna work with outside counsel there in order for them to be able to have that very specialized knowledge. And then in the United States even sometimes, we had a pretty well-known employment law firm that was our outside counsel. Since we were a staffing company, we dealt with basically a lot of labor and employment law. And so there were certain times where I would outsource, outsource those issues because it just made sense. However, one nugget that I would give to in-house counsels who are maybe not super familiar with outsourcing to outside counsel, you want to do some of the legwork ahead of time before you send it to outside counsel so that you can save money. So for me, I wouldn't just send a bunch of different questions over a period of time to my outside counsel. I would send an entire email that included the questions that I wanted them to answer, or I would organize all the documentation that they requested ahead of time so that they didn't have to spend extra hours trying to sift through everything and organize it. I would also do some of the internal interviews if we needed to get, gather information from employees internally about something. I would do those interviews and I would synthesize them and I would send them to outside counsel. And I made sure that I always kept track of the money that I was saving. So if I worked on three hours of work and then sent it to outside counsel, I would calculate what is their hourly rate to us or what is their retainer. And I would try to figure out how much money I had saved the company. Because ultimately, when you're asking for a raise or you're asking for a promotion as an in-house attorney, you wanna make sure that you actually have hard numbers for the amount of money you saved or the amount of time you saved or the amount of money that you made because you don't wanna be seen solely as a cost center. That is such a great tip. I love that the the data can be used to actually show how you're saving money and adding value in that way. That is, I've never heard of that before. That's brilliant, <laughs> truly brilliant. When we often, I'm just kind of aware of how in-house lawyers are starting to, well, some are quite sophisticated in it, but there's a journey there on using that data to to show the value that you're adding and and perhaps litigation that was avoided and, and certain ways that we add value so that the business can assess exactly what you said for resource and, and for additional headcount, additional salary. But that is a fantastic tip. Yes. Thank you for sharing, Alex. I'm going to keep an eye out for this article when it comes in. <laughs> and I'll absolutely, absolutely share it wide because uh, I suspect that you've got more where that came from. But it's brilliant. Thank well, you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I got that information or that idea. My father is very, very innovative and creative. And so he always told me, you know, keep track of what you do because you never know when you're going to need to use it. And then the paralegal that was actually at this huge multinational company, she would keep track of how quick our contract review turnaround time was because at this huge multinational company, we still had a 24 to 48 hour turnaround time. Any contract that was given to us, we had to turn it around with our our reviews and our advice and any edits within 24 to 48 hours. Huge multinational company. It was, we were just workhorses there, but she would always keep track of that. And it was so cool. And I'm like, you know, I should probably start keeping track of other things that I do as well. And so I kept track of the amount of time that I saved my team in India because I restructured their job duties. 
I ended up saving 108 hours annually because I restructured what we were doing and I restructured our communication as well. And so that's actually part of the consulting services that I now do for companies. I actually can go into different companies and say, okay, like let's see where you're not being effective or efficient with your time and let me see what I can do to help to restructure things. So it's really cool once you actually start keeping track of what you do, you recognize like, wow, you know what, just because I didn't get this one contract back in the 24 to 48 hour time frame doesn't mean that I'm a failure. Let's look at the percentage. Oh, wow, our team returns this 98% of the time, 24 to 48 hours. And that was actually the percentage. So when someone complained about us, we're like, no, 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 no. You sent us a 500 page federal contract. We're not going to get it done within 48 hours. But 98% of the time we get all your contracts back to you. So give us some slack. You know, we we expect service levels from other departments within a business and our, you know, often the, the customers or the client of the business will expect certain KPIs or service levels from the business itself. So it makes so much sense that the in-house department also is able to consider itself essentially because we are a service department, customer service facing so let's also hold ourselves up to committing to service levels and and then setting those expectations with the business. I think that's exactly the way that it should be structured. And as you said, then you've got some real data to back yourselves when the business is getting a little cranky because of a 500-page contract. And yes, they happen. And it's Friday night and it's due Monday morning. We've all been there, my goodness. But uh, you've got that data to back yourself. And, uh, you know, if it gets escalated to management, it's like, hey, guys, we can only do so much. And here's that that hard data, the numbers, you know, the lawyers, maybe we don't often think to use numbers, perhaps to represent our value, because we love our words. But that is that's a pretty compelling story to be able to tell. Alex, lastly, because we are coming up to the top of the hour and it is your Saturday night and I'm going to let you get on with what you need to do. But I would love to know what you have read or listened to recently that has inspired you. So I'm currently reading the book Learned Optimism and it talks all about the difference between optimism and pessimism and explanatory style so essentially how you explain situations that happen to you both good situations and bad situations whether you explain them optimistically or pessimistically and so far the research has shown that if you have a pessimistic explanatory style you're more at risk for depression anxiety so many different things and generally people with pessimistic explanatory style don't really have very successful lives either professionally or personally but you can change your explanatory style to be optimistic and so this book is really just teaching me that in the past I've had a very pessimistic explanatory style as a child I did as well I think it was because I dealt with a lot of very traumatic incidents um, as a child you know breaking my back being one of them Um, and so now I'm recognizing that as I've changed my explanatory style to be more optimistic, that the things I'm reading in the book actually are happening. I'm becoming more successful. I'm becoming happier. I'm not suffering from depression. I'm not suffering from anxiety. Every once in a while I do. But overall, I get over it so quickly. Or if there's a failure in my life, I get over it so quickly because I know that it's not permanent or pervasive. It's just, well, that happened. Okay, what did I learn from it? Let's move on. So it's a really phenomenal book. It's called Learned Optimism. And then I also listened recently to, or I read recently, The Sixth Man by Andre Iguodala. And it's about his life and how he became one of the best off-the-bench players in the history of the NBA. He's a really cool dude. The book is so down-to-earth. 
and I really enjoyed it. I love sports books, obviously. And then the guests that I have on my podcast, every time I listen back to an episode or I just interview them, they're so inspiring. And my podcast is called Your Potential for Everything. And I'm sure you find this on your podcast as well, that it's really just a masterclass on that person's life and experiences and you get it for free. So I absolutely love listening to podcasts, my podcast, your podcast, all different podcasts because all of, of that. All of the pods. <laughs> all of the pods, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. Such wonderful recommendations. And you did mention where we can find your podcast, but where can my listeners find you more broadly online? Yes. So you can go to yourpotentialforeverything.com. That's where you can book consults with me. You can see what type of strategies I offer. You can see the books I've written, the podcasts, my blog posts. I write about all different things, all my recent articles and interviews. That's the best way to find me, yourpotentialforeverything.com. Alex, thank you so much for spending an hour of your time with me. I feel like we've deep dived, we've gone in all these different directions and I, I just want to commend you for what you're doing now and how you were able to change that perspective, learn the optimism in the situation <laughs> that was there that came unexpectedly March last year and here you are absolutely killing it and no doubt will continue to. It's been just wonderful to connect with you and get to know you a little better. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is a wonderful podcast. You are doing people such a great service by having people on and letting them kind of learn the nitty gritty about the law, about different positions, but also about the people that are in the profession that they're in. It's so vitally important to know who our peers are and who our colleagues are on a deeper le level other than just what they do at work. Yes, human first. Couldn't agree more. Thank you for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review for this podcast. Tell me what you'd love to hear more of and where you are listening from. I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn, Instagram, or even Clubhouse. Check out the show notes for all of these links.